our recording. Good morning, uh, beloved class. This is Sunday, December 20th. We're working through our study in Romans 5 through 8 called The Reign of Life. We're taking a number of excursuses in uh, Romans 8. We're calling it the Mount Everest of Assurance. All the glories that are set before us and how deeply and inseparably we're loved by God. If you, I'm going to go to screen share now so that we can look at the handout. And we are uh, about three or four pages in. It's B, if total depravity, then election. We ended last week by distinguishing two ways of understanding the doctrine of foreknowledge. And uh, we are going with the Reformed or Calvinistic view of foreknowledge, and that is God doesn't just know facts. He knows individuals. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 8. He predestined you to be conformed to his image of his son. The alternative view that's called Arminianism says God simply knew ahead of time that you would choose him of your own free will. So I would like to uh, dive in then to this doctrine of election a little bit more, show, show you why it's absolutely necessary because of the doctrine of total depravity. But curiously, if you've studied Arminianism, the, Ar- the remonstrants, it's, it's submitted five points of doctrine to the uh, Church of the Netherlands. They also believed in total depravity, which is very interesting. But then they didn't believe in irresistible grace. Uh, they didn't believe in unconditional election. So there's some curiosity there about how there seem to be some um, inconsistencies. The, the Reformed Calvinistic doctrine is very consistent. If total depravity, then election. I hope I'm able to convince you of that this morning. And before I pray, I'll just ask this question. Why should you know this? Why, why do I take the time to explain this to you? Does it make any difference? If you're saved, isn't that all that counts? And the answer is you should know this doctrine because of the two things God is looking for on the earth. Now you tell me, when God looks at human hearts, what is it he preeminently wants to see in that heart? Humility. And what is it he wants to receive from all of his creatures? Praise. And it is this doctrine alone, the doctrine of election, that gives God all the glory for our salvation and humbles us because you realize if, if, if your salvation is dependent on your will and you made that choice, you've got something to boast about, of course, but not before God. So the, the, those are, that's the reason, other than the fact the Bible teaches it, we should know this doctrine, we should be humbled by it, it should fill us with praise, it should not make us arrogant in any sense. In fact, it cuts against all human boasting because God is the one who gets all the glory for saving us and seeing us to the end. So let's pray and we'll jump right into the handout. We're grateful, Lord, this morning for the sunrise. The sun is absolutely indispensable to our welfare on this earth. And it tells us that Jesus is the sunrise from on high. You've come to shine the light of the truth of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, you will do that. You'll give us understanding. You'll humble our hearts. You'll fill them with praise that you are the God of our salvation. You love to bring the dead to life. This is stunning. This is amazing. So give us humility. Give us understanding. Bring light to our hearts and to our paths as we study your word this morning. I thank you for uh, these men and women. What a privilege to join with them 
this morning seeking you, asking you to teach us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So if total depravity, then election. If man is truly dead in sin and unable and unwilling, notice those two things, ability and willingness, those are linked. We'll see as we move through the handout. Those two things are linked. If we're unable to move towards God because we're dead and because we're unable, we're unwilling to move towards God, it logically uh, follows that if he could never be, we could never be saved unless God moved first. And in Reformed theology, we call this regeneration precedes faith. What are we like when God regenerates us? We're passive. We're doing nothing. We're dead. We have as much appetite for God as a dead person has for food. Right? You've never seen anybody lying in a coffin saying, give me something to eat. No. We have no appetite for God, no will, no inclination, no desire, no impulse to move towards God in our naturally born state. We're dead. We're passive when God regenerates us. The proof of regeneration is faith. You are believing. You are trusting. This is one thing that confuses our Arminian brothers and sisters because they hear us say, I did nothing to be saved. And that's not, that's not the most accurate way to say it. To be more precise, you did nothing when you were regenerated. To be saved, you believed the gospel. You did believe. You did repent. No one was doing that for you. When we're converted, we're active. We're believing. We're repenting. The point is, those things are absolutely predicated upon first being born again. They're the evidence or proof that you have been born again. How do you know you've been born again? You believe the gospel, you repent, you turn to Christ, you look to Christ for salvation. And uh, <clears throat> we are born again in order that we might believe. We call this prevenient grace. Don't be confused. You might go to a Methodist church, which is essentially Arminian in, in uh, the doctrine of salvation, and you'll hear the phrase prevenient grace. Both Arminians and Reformed talk about prevenient grace they mean different things by it. Essentially, the Arminian view is God's grace does go before us. It enables us, as it were, to choose of our own free will. It doesn't actually bring to pass the thing God is ordaining, which is your faith. Uh, the Reformed view is God's grace goes before you, and what it starts, it actually accomplishes. It moves your heart to, be, to have life and to actually believe. And so we'll see as we move through the handout that faith and repentance are gifts God gives us. He works them in us. If you have faith, saving faith, God's the one who put it there. You exercised it. You believed. Yes, that's very true. But God gives these as gifts. So glory to him for those gifts, the two most wonderful gifts that could ever be given to human beings, the gift of saving faith and repentance unto life. Here's some verses that substantiate that. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. What is seeing the kingdom if it's not faith? It's seeing the king, it's seeing the way life is. What is the kingdom of God like? We are blind to that. We are uninterested in that. We are dead to that until what, Jesus says? Until you're born again. So regeneration precedes faith. That's how John began his gospel. Actually, if you look at the John 1, 12, he said to as many as believed in him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who received him. From a human point of view, you receive and you believe in Jesus. And then the next thing out of John's mouth is, who were born, born again, not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of flesh, but of God. So there's two verses right there that, that, that conflate what we're supposed to do with the good news, believe it and receive Jesus, 
and that our ability is to do that is predicated upon being born of God. But let's just make this point. If you'd like to be saved, if you want to be with Jesus in heaven, if you want to have life, if you want to have a new heart, if you want to be born again, ask the Spirit of God to do that with absolute certainty. He will give you that life. No one is kept from, from uh, the kingdom of God who wants to be there simply because God is the one that regenerates. If you want to be there, ask him to give you that desire, and he will. So what's the truth? If you really want to be saved, he's already put that desire in you. You have this wonderful illustration of this in Acts 4. Paul is preaching, and it says Acts 16, excuse me, I didn't mean Acts 4, Acts 16, 14. It says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by why did Lydia respond? The Lord opened her heart. If the Lord had not opened her heart, would Lydia respond? Absolutely not. Everything Paul said would have gone like this, right, right over her head, and would can, nothing would have been understood unless God had opened her heart. So I'll bet you Lydia is a person who believes in the doctrine of unconditional election. You see this come out as Moses is instructing Israel at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 29, it's the end of the book. Paul says, excuse me, Moses says, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, and ears to hear. Why don't the Israelites have the ability to see spiritual things, hear spiritual things, know God truly in their hearts? Why? God hasn't given it. Now, if you were standing there, when let's, say Mo, let's just say Moses preached that, if you were standing there, what would be the right response to that? Oh, if that's true, give me that heart, Lord. Give me those eyes, Lord. Give me those ears, Lord. We are bound, we are responsible to do that, to plead for that. And of course, he will always give to whomsoever asks. We've studied, we're studying 1 Peter, and this is how 1 Peter began. God caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I was listening to a, an Arminian preacher one time preach this text, and he was focusing on the next couple verses, and he was preaching the Arminian doctrine, and that is, you of your own free will have to decide. It's up to you. you know, God's hands are tied. Um, and he, he, it's interesting, as he preached the Arminian doctrine from this text, he completely ignored this verse. God caused you to be born again. So why are you alive spiritually? Who caused it? You or God? God did. You have a very clear picture of this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. We're told in that text, God says, I will cause the spirit to enter you so that you may come to life. Why do people come to life? God sends his spirit. He brings them to life. What's the evidence you've come to life spiritually? You believe, you want the kingdom, you want Jesus, you repent, you flee to Christ, you trust the gospel. That's the evidence you've been born again. The New Testament equivalent, one would be the raising of Lazarus, recorded in John 11. There Lazarus is dead. Jesus speaks the word of life. Come forth. Lazarus comes forth. Do you think Lazarus had a choice? Do you think Lazarus could have resisted that, that, uh, that word of Jesus? No. That's why the next thing that follows in these five points of Calvinism after total depravity is irresistible grace. 
when God calls you, you will come to life because he wants you to. And that's why he's calling you. He causes you to be born again that you might have life and have faith. He wants you to have faith. That's why he gives it to you. So Lazarus is going to come forth from that tomb because the efficacious word of Jesus brings forth life, brings him forth. We're all like Lazarus in the tomb until we hear, until Jesus calls us and he brings us out. So God must awaken us, although we may feel like we're in control of the process. I think that's important to say because humanly, what do we experience? Think about your conversion. If you were converted later in life, it may have felt to you like you were doing the questioning, you were doing the exploring, you were listening, you were reading, and all of a sudden it dawned on you. So that's fine. God doesn't have a problem with that. The reality is, even though it feels like you might have been in, uh, in control of the process, the reality is God initiated it, God was bringing you along, God was opening your eyes, God was unstopping your ears, God was bringing faith to life in you. I do want you to realize that some verses in the Bible speak from a human point of this and some from a divine point of view. This is why when the, when the, the apostles are preaching in the book of Acts, they're not preaching the doctrine of election. They're preaching Jesus. That's how people get saved. Jesus is preached. God ordains the ends as well as the means. If the end is God saving his elect, the means is the preaching of the gospel. So I'm reading in my devotions in Acts 13, and just read this yesterday. Here's a perfect illustration of this. Acts 13, 44, Paul and Barnabas are together. They're in Pisidian Antioch, and it says there in verse 44, the next Sabbath almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's a good thing, isn't it? Don't we want that? Every person in Beltsville, every person in Greenbelt, every person in College Park, every person in Silver Spring, Bethesda, to gather to hear the word of God. That's our dream. We want traffic jams on Sunday mornings, don't we? The next Sabbath, they gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Who was responsible for that? Well, that was sin in their own hearts, and of course, Satan behind that, because Satan's always thwarting the work of the gospel and the word of God. So the Jews are filled with jealousy. They begin to contradict Paul, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. See, their unbelief is their fault. It's never God's fault. The reason anybody is not saved isn't God's fault. It's that they refused to believe. So here, that is their unbelief seen from a human point of view. Without question, this is this this antimony that we've talked about. Two parallel lines, both truths, hard to reconcile in our own thinking. Human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do, yet God is sovereign over all of those choices without himself being the author of sin or unbelief. He doesn't need to be the author of unbelief. It's already in their hearts, in their natural state. So, so Paul says, look, you are judging yourselves worthy of, of eternal life. We're turning to the Gentiles. And he has a mission to do that right from the Old Testament. So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's Acts uh, 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what is that? That so so the Gentiles are being saved. They're responsible to respond to the message. The Jews didn't. The Gentiles did. The Gentiles are being saved. And what does Paul do, or Luke, who's writing this, what does he do? He reflects on their conversion from a divine point of view. As many, somebody needs to mute themselves. Check your mutes, guys. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as were appointed. Who did the appointing? Obviously, God, not themselves. All right. Just want you to, so when you're reading through the Bible, you're going to see some verses spoken from a human point of view, others from a divine. Oh, there's another one earlier in Acts, and that's Acts 11. You know, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius, a bunch of Gentiles believe. They report this to the Jews, and, and they're a little stunned because the Jewish mindset at that time is salvation is just for the Jews. They don't quite get that God is including the Gentiles. Uh, and so when they realized that Gentiles were being converted, Acts 11, 18, they said this, well, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to faith. So that tells you how you enter the kingdom, repentance unto life, and that's from a human point of view. You must believe, you must repent, and this is a, a, a reflection on all those people being converted from a divine point of view. Oh, God is granting them the grace of repentance unto life as well. God gives it as a gift. Uh, that's an evidence for sovereign grace. Somebody's still not muted out there. Somebody's still not muted out there. I think it's Charles. All right, only God can reverse our fallen state. Now I'm gonna to try to um, show you the, uh, again, more biblical proof for, uh, for total depravity and which makes the case for sovereign grace. So if we're dead, he must bring us to life. This is one of the most uh, breathtaking, compelling passages in the New Testament for a variety of reasons. It's Ephesians 1 that spills into Ephesians 2. We're going to conclude this handout looking at the first uh, 13 or 14 verses of Ephesians 1, which give God all the glory for the grace we receive. But so we'll get to that later. But after Paul does that, he pauses and he breaks out into prayer. So Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, true faith is going to produce love. Where does that faith come from? The sovereign working of God. I heard of your faith. I heard of your love. I don't cease to, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Quick pause. That verb enlightened is from the Greek photizo. You may recognize that coming from the uh, word photo, which is light. When you take a photograph, you're literally writing with light. Well, this, what Paul is praying is that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, may have more light come in. This is a great prayer to pray for your children. It's a great prayer to pray for yourself. It's a great prayer to prayer uh, for people who are outside of Christ. Lord, open the eyes of their hearts that their eyes might be enlightened. Light might come in. And then he, he, he lists three specific things. He wants these believers, believers, 
to see more clearly, to have light from heaven, light from the word of God, the spirit of wisdom and a revelation of knowledge of God. You don't know God without these things as it were. The eyes of your heart enlightened <clears throat> that you may, here you go, here are the three things. You may know what is the hope to which he's called you. We could say a lot about that. Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We could say a lot about that. Here's the third thing he wants the eyes of your heart to uh, have light to understand. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants you to know, to think about, to contemplate that the Spirit of God would show you with greater clarity, open the eyes of your heart to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Believers are supposed to know something about the surpassing greatness of God's power. That, belief, that power is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The ascension of Jesus unleashes spiritual power to do what? To convert people. So look, you, you see this phrase that I've underlined for you in the handout. The immeasurable, surpassing greatness of his power. It, here's what I liken it to. Stand at the, at, the, at the end of a runway of an airport and watch a jet take off. I mean a jumbo jet, a huge 777, 747, something like that. This big, massive metal filled with people, thousands of gallons of, of uh, jet fuel, and these two engines on the wing cause it to take off. That to me is one way of thinking of surpassingly, immeasurably great power. You stand there and go, how does that thing get off the ground? Well, so it raises this question for the believer. Okay, the eyes of my heart are to be open. I'm supposed to get more light in to understand what is the greatness of God's power towards me, a believer. And it raises what question? How is that power exercised? That's the question Paul answers beginning in chapter 2. He starts, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there you see the slavery of humanity in our natural state. Slaves to the flesh, the devil, and the world. It's all right there. That constitutes a state of spiritual deadness. He says, when you were dead, and then he teases out what spiritual death functionally looks like. You're a slave. This is the way you live. You walk according to the power of the flesh, the devil, and the world. You were dead. But look at verse 4. But God. Now, linguistically, if you just look at the original text, the first two words of verse 1, and you, are set in distinct contrast, parallel to the first two words of verse 4. But God. You, what's the best you can do? Slavery to all those things, the flesh, the world, and the, and the devil. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. That's the answer to the question, how did God work the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? 
He did so by making us alive when we were dead. That's, and that's, so to speak, the greatest exercise of spiritual power on the earth today. Humanly dead people come to life by God exercising the power of the risen Christ to bring them to life. Amazing. So that's Paul's prayer. The eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know, the surpassing greatness of his power. That power is when you were dead, he brought you to life. I want to illustrate it. I think you've heard me use this illustration before uh, in a course of pastoring here for three years. You probably have it. So let me use it one more time. I learned it from Tim Keller, who said he learned it from R.C. Sproul. And uh, therefore, it's got to be true, right? It's got to be a good illustration. So here's the illustration. It, it answers the question, how are people saved? And it il illustrates several different ways uh, through the course of history people sought to answer that question. Here's one view. Man is, it's, a, it's called the lake illustration. Man is standing on the surface of the lake. Uh, man is, we're looking out over a lake, and here's somebody out in the lake thrashing, drowning in peril. One view is uh, man swims to shore and saves himself. What do we call that? Man must save himself. It's called humanism. If you read the Humanist Manifesto, it was written in the 60s, it uses those exact words. Man needs no savior. Man must save himself. So that's one view. It's not religious particularly. Man is thrashing on the surface of the lake. He gets enough strength, wisdom, integrity, whatever, swims ashore, saves himself. Okay. Second view. Man's out there thrashing on the surface of the water. God sees man is in trouble. God moves towards man, man moves towards God. There's this sort of happy meeting in the middle, and we're safely delivered to the shore. I would just call that some form of theological liberalism, sort of God does his part, we do our part, everybody lives happily ever after. Much closer to the biblical view. Man is thrashing on the surface of the water, in peril, about to drown. God say, sends his son Jesus as this person's savior. God reaches down his hand, Look, I've saved you, I've done it all in Jesus, but it's up to you now to grab my hand. If you won't, you're going to die. If you will, you'll be saved. So God reaches out his hand, I'll save you if you will, and man grabs God's hand and is saved. That's what we call Arminianism. God does his part, but it's up to you to exercise your will ultimately to be saved. What's the biblical picture according to what we just saw in Ephesians 2? Is man thrashing around on the surface of the lake? Absolutely not. We are dead at the bottom of the lake where it is dark and damp and awful. Salvation is God drains the lake, raises us up, breathes life into us, resuscitates us, shows us Jesus, and we awaken and say, Jesus, save me. That's salvation. He brings us to life when we were dead. I hope the lake illustration is helpful to you. So speaking of total depravity, Let's tease that out a little bit. Another phrase would be radical corruption. I mentioned last week, some people don't like the term total depravity because it may give this sense that we're absolutely as bad as we, we could be, and that's not what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. Another phrase would be radical corruption, uh, radical from the Latin radix, which means root, and this doctrine is saying at the root of who we are, there is corruption such that 
we would never seek God and God wouldn't seek us. Uh, God wouldn't have any reason in us to seek us. So there are three main pieces to the doctrine of radical corruption or total depravity. The first is we're not as bad as we could be simply because of common grace. It's only the restraining hand of God that keeps human beings from being as bad as they could be. Left to ourselves, we would be utterly and completely and totally wretched all the time. Think of uh, Genesis 6-5, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and the only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That seems to describe a time when God withdrew his hand of common grace the hand of God that, that actively restrains the evil in human hearts from being all that it could be, the reason life works as well as it does, the reason people aren't worse to each other than they are, the reason there's not more war, famine, evil, etc., more hatred, is the hand of God. God be praised that life is as good as it is. That Genesis 6-5 verse seems to be indicating a time when God says, okay, I'm removing my restraint. And what follows, you see, is violence covered the earth. That's what human beings will do to each other. We'll resort to being animals, and we'll just kill each other. Sort of in a survival of the fittest thing. So we're not as bad as we could be, common grace. But in our natural state, no one is seeking God. This is why Ezekiel says, I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In that heart of flesh, we're unresponsive. In that, excuse me, that heart of stone, Hearts of stone are impervious to the knocking of God. You've heard the illustration from the Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the doorknob, of course, only on the inside. This is the Arminian view. Jesus is knocking. Jesus is knocking. But you're the only one that can open the door. Uh, look, in a sense, that's true, right? We plead with Jesus. We plead with others to, to take Christ. They refuse. We keep pleading. We keep presenting Christ to them. We want them to believe. They've got to believe. That, that's all true. But the truth is, we're not inside. Uh, we're we're not inside a, a living people. We're asleep in a stupor on the sofa, dead. And if they if if what God does is He goes into the basement, and He lights a fire, and He and that fire sends smoke up into the living room, and finally we start to cough, and we're awakened by the fire. God starts, and we run to the door to, uh, and there is Jesus ready to save us. So God is the one who who awakens us and brings us to the place where we embrace Jesus. He takes out the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. John, Gospel of John, people love the darkness rather than the light. This is why the light of the world has come, Jesus. We'll hear more about that actually in the sermon this morning. Romans 3.11, Paul is, uh, uh, delineates this doctrine, drawing from the words of Psalm 14. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. No one. He's writing to a Jew and Gentile audience because in our natural state, this is what our hearts are like. No one understands spiritually. No one seeks for God. There's, strictly speaking, no such thing as a natural-born seeker. If you find yourself seeking, if you find yourself curious about the things of God, if you find yourself more and more interested in Jesus, you can be pretty sure that desire to know more was put in your heart. Well, you can be certain it was put in the, your heart by God. Sometimes when you have relationships, long-term relationships with people and you're talking to them about Christ and they're honest with you, you can actually see and they're, they're beginning to wrestle with spiritual things and beginning to connect the dots and beginning to ask really pertinent questions and beginning to see themselves in a new light. You can kind of look at them and go, ah, they've been born again. You can see it. They're beginning to process all of this. So, 
that's, that's kind of a fun thing. Romans 8, we saw this early in our study, the mindset in the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law. So in our natural state, we are, we are born shaking our fists at God saying, you keep your grubby hands off my life. That is our natural state, although human beings aren't necessarily conscious of thinking that way. They suppress that in their hearts and create illusions in their mind that they're good people, maybe even religious people. So uh, although in our heart of hearts, we want to have nothing to do with God. And don't be fooled, you can be religious. You can go to church, you can be religious, you can do all kinds of religious things and still never have dealt with this poison that's in the heart. God is the one who has to deal with that by taking, a, taking out that heart and giving us a new heart. How do you know you have that new heart? You want to be saved. You're seeking Jesus. You want to believe in Jesus. You own your sin. You're a sinner that needs to be saved. And then Romans 5, 5 through 8, where Paul's talking about the love of God is demonstrated. How is it demonstrated? Why we were helpless, why we were enemies, why we were sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, this is what I'll, I'll say a little bit about in my sermon for the Christmas Eve service. Is that the amazing thing about the divine warrior, Jesus, he comes and he doesn't come to slay his enemies, he comes to die in love for his enemies. That was us before we were saved. You know, if that doesn't humble our hearts, if that doesn't put a song of praise in our hearts, if that doesn't give us a love for those outside of Christ, nothing will. To know I was God's enemy, but he's the one that saved me. He set his love upon me. The third part then of total depravity is three parts. We're not as bad as we could be. We're not in our natural state seeking God. And as God looks at us, he finds no good in us. There's no reason in us that would move God to seek us. We don't desire the good. We don't really even understand the good. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So we should never expect an unbeliever to get it spiritually. What we do, though, is we continually expose that person to what is true. We continue to pray for them. The eyes of their heart may be enlightened. We continue to set before them Christ in word and deed and trusting that those are the things that God uses to, to, to awaken them and, uh, and bring them to understand the gospel. And here's our passage from Ephesians 2. But God... When we were dead, he raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Paul says a parallel passage in Colossians 2. When you were dead, he made you alive. So in answer to the question, when were you made alive? When you believed? No, I was made alive when I was dead. What's the evidence I've come to life spiritually? I believe the gospel and repent unto life. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural, natural man does not accept the things of God's spirit, their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. In other words, in our natural state, we don't have the Holy Spirit in us. And you only understand spiritual things because the Holy Spirit is in you, giving you the ability, making that connection uh, with you. So that raises this question, oh, but man has free will. If you begin to describe this doctrine to people, maybe even some Bible believers will say, no, 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 no. Man has free will. So this phrase, free will, is tossed hither and yon, I think, fairly sloppily, because you really have to parse what we mean by free will. And I don't think it helps to frame the uh, salvation issue, who is responsible ultimately for our salvation, God or ourselves, 
I don't think this is the most responsible way to frame it. So let's do a little bit of work as we conclude this morning on free will. Here is a little diagram of the history of free will. In the garden, before the fall, what could you say about man, Adam and Eve's will? It was free. They were able to sin and able not to sin. They were able not to sin because God created them in his image, in holiness and righteousness. If they had not sinned, they would have lived on forever, never sinning, if they passed the probation God gave them. They were also able to sin, which is quite obvious because they did sin. So in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve truly had freedom of will. They were able to sin, able not to sin. Since sin has entered the world, we are slaves to sin. We are not able not to sin. And this is what we've seen in our study in Romans 5 through 8. Once you're born again, what can be said of a person with a new heart? Are you still able to sin? Yes, Romans 6, indwelling sin is still with you. We're, we're called to not let sin reign in us because it still wants to. We're still sinners. We're going to sin to the day we die. But we're also able not to sin. That's the glory of being in union with Christ. You're, a new person has risen in, in union with Christ. We're not slaves to sin. We don't have to sin. The power is within you to not sin. Um, and so every, every time we sin, it's our fault, right? The, the power was there. God, God has freed us from tyranny and slavery to sin. And then in heaven, in glory, we are not able to sin. Uh, it, it'll be a faint memory. Sin, what's that? All there will be is righteousness and holiness. Think about how absolutely wonderful that will be. It's really hard to imagine, given how familiar we are with sin. So... Let's define a little bit more clearly what we mean by free will. Man in his natural state is a free moral agent. If you want to use that phrase, that's fine. In that, we determine our own actions, we're conscious of moral obligation, and we're not coerced to sin. When we sin, we choose out of our nature, and as such, we are totally responsible before God. So if, if you want to talk about free will as we are free moral agents, fine. That, 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 that's a biblical concept. I think I've faithfully described here the reformed view of man in our natural state. No one coerces us. That should mean my free will, that's fine. In this state, though, we have liberty to choose righteousness or sin. God's not keeping us from it. God's keeping no one from choosing the right thing. We're at liberty to choose it, but we have no ability to choose. Why? Because the desire is absent. See, you're always going to choose what you desire. So, so therefore, is the will sovereign or servant? Is the will making the choices or is the will serving to something else? The will is a servant. It's always determined by something else. So every choice depends on a preference of one thing over another. Your desire determines your will. So we end up making free choices, but we only choose what we want. See the distinction? Anytime your will is exercised, it's exercised because your desire wants to bring something to pass. So the will is only doing what Mr. Desire tells it to do. 
therefore it's not very helpful to talk about free will. It's much more relevant to talk about do human beings in their natural state have the desire to move towards God and if total depravity is what the Bible teaches, the answer is no. But all our choices are significant, all our choices are free, meaning they're not coerced, but we only choose what we want. So just how free is man? We're free to pursue only the inclinations of our heart. And this is the passage there from Ephesians chapter 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. This is what you're free to do. The power of the prince of the air, the spirit now working in the sense of disobedience. So that's not a really pretty picture of freedom, is it? Slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And he concludes it by saying, we're by nature children of wrath. How, how do you read that? Are we under the wrath of God, or we have wrath towards God? Probably both. So, if my salvation depended on my initiative, would I ever be saved? I hope you see the conclusion now is, no, given my spiritual deadness and God's obligation only to act justly towards me. So therefore, we are saved by mercy, God not giving us what we deserve. We're saved by God's sovereign initiative coming to us in our otherwise unresponsive dead state, making us alive when we were dead. That's why God gets all the glory for our salvation. Not just saving us through Christ, but giving us the ability, the eyes, the desire to embrace that salvation through faith and repentance. As we'll see, those are gifts that God gives us. So we'll move on in the handout right to this next portion next time, just illustrating more and more of these things, why it's absolutely essential that God had to move first. I hope the takeaway for you is profound praise in your heart to God for your salvation. Why did he save me? Why me of all people? Oh, what a cosmic joke. He saved me? You're kidding. Wow. And that should humble our hearts uh, to serve him with all of our hearts. So let me pray for us as we uh, get ready for worship, and we will pick up next time right here. If we are blind, he must open our eyes. So let's pray. I thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters. I thank you that you have put in their hearts a desire to know you, to embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord, to flee from sin, to, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you've done all this for them and for me. And, and thank you that this is a church here, Wallace, that believes these things and has preached these things for decades and decades and decades. Lord, we pray now as we have a little break that you prepare our hearts for worship, that you would give us grace to engage with you with all of our being, that it might be said during that uh, time following 1030, we loved you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, voicing to you our deepest praise, receiving in our hearts the word implanted that it might humble us before you and therefore embolden us with strong confidence and joy and peace to love you and others even as Jesus loved us. We were giving him our worst and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What grace. Thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts to see that. Thank you for the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe raising us from death to life. We praise you. I thank you for these dear servants. In Jesus' name, amen. And I will stop screen share and see your lovely faces. There you are. Thank you so much.
You're welcome. I hope it was helpful. Always is. Merry Christmas, Mike. You too, Melanie. Will I see you later, Melanie? No, you're not coming in. Are you coming in? I am coming in, but I won't come into the sanctuary. All right, well, I'll try to say hi. Thank you all. Thank you. All right. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you. To Dory. Happy hey, Judy. Read it, Terry. Will do. Soccer? Mike. Yes. Is there any way to get your notes on this? Get a hard copy. A hard copy of what I just worked through? Yes, sir. It's on the webpage. Okay. I'll figure out how to make that So, happen. I mean, I'm happy to email it to any of you, but when you go Sunday morning to join us at Wallace, you'll see the link for this as well as view the handout here. Okay. So, I run a hard copy off for Janice ahead of time. Um, because I live with her, obviously. Uh, but the, you can, um, <laughs> I, I can email you one, but it's right there on the, on the church. Uh, did you not see it when you uh, click here? No, for handout? Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, because it would be hard to follow without it. I'll send it to you. Melanie, tell Susanna hello. I will. I'm sure you're enjoying having her home. We are. She's wearing oh, her mask around the house. Hey, does anybody know where you can get a rapid COVID test? She would feel a lot better about being 